Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Ken, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I will be continuing our reread of Troubled Blood, this time for chapters 66 through 68. As always, please be warned that our discussion of Troubled Blood will reference events that occurred later in the book, as well as previous books in the series. So without further ado, let's get into a few things actually before we start chapter 66. Yeah, so that question that we had last week was really fun. And mm-hmm. thanks to everyone who answered and who, who sent in their dinner parties. I want to read my favorite one because it was just really funny to me. This was from our friend David. He said, John Bristow, Liz Tassel, Donald Lang, Raf Chisel, and Janice Beattie. And he said, don't eat or drink anything and make sure you know where the exit is. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I hope that Strike and Robin are far away from this dinner party, but I love this because it sounds like some crazy movie where a bunch of killers are locked in a room together and they all take each other out. Oh, I would watch the hell out of that movie. That would be so good. It reminds me of And Then There Were None, mm-hmm. an Agatha Christie book that I love and I love all the adaptations of that so yeah i really liked that i haven't read it i think i should oh it's great yeah i think you would like it i'll put it on my list yeah it's missing creed though yeah he's picking the killer from each book but yeah i think creed should be there let's add him vara in there too just for fun she (laughs) is a conspirator she counts right i don't know who else would you add to this dinner party assuming they're all gonna die oh would you add from the series Oakton. Oakton. Morris. I don't know if Morris equals this level of evil. He's not murdered anybody. We That we know of. You don't know. Maybe he did. I was thinking more like Whitaker or Brockbank. Oh, yeah. Okay. Both of them. Sure. And then throw in Morris. Throw in Kyle, to be oh, honest. God. Kyle. God. Poor <laughs> Kyle. He does not deserve that. You don't know. I think he does. Let's just throw them in. Maybe one of them will make it out alive. <laughs> Who do you think would win? Oh, who's going to win the... If the you have one victor. Yeah. Who's who's making it out? I think it's Lang. You think Lang? I think maybe Janice. Yeah, but all they have to do is not eat anything. Lang is the only one in that list with the overpowering physical strength and, mm-hmm. you know, real psycho blades. He's the yeah. one I want gone first. Mm-hmm. But horribly, I think that Lang would come out on top unless Janice was really clever with her stuff. I think maybe they would underestimate her. Yeah, they might. Would she have all her poisons with her, though, is the question. Would sure, they're prepared? all prepared. They're all prepared. This is a weird John scenario. Bristow shows up and he's like, this is on the ground floor. What the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> Liz has her dogs. This went dark. And all yeah, the acid. <laughs> Oh, uh, the acid. And I don't know. What about Bristow? Bristow's pretty unhinged. Yeah, he's he's a little rabbit man. Yeah, he'd probably use Lang for protection until the last minute. They'd pair together and then like they'd turn on each other and then, you know. Yeah, John Bristow isn't walking out of there alive. Oh, hell no. Neither is Raph. I think he'd be like crying in a corner maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, well, that was fun. And dark. Very, that took a very dark turn. Oh, boy. Thank you, David. Oh, that was great. But you did have a few other thoughts, though, while you were editing the last episode, though. Yeah, I had another thought while I was editing. And it's just a little thing. But when they're in Skegness, 
and strike learns about the whole donkey thing that's when robin actually says i'll be 30 soon and so i started wondering like is this the moment where he starts planning is this where he gets the idea oh i love that that's sweet i love the idea of him sitting in the drive home trying to think of how to work a donkey into a surprise for her birthday yeah like staring at the window deep in thought just thinking about possible donkey gifts he gets home and he googles donkey presents that's adorable oh that was something i didn't know i needed until now yeah. <laughs> do we know the date when they go to skegness Oh, I feel like we do based on figuring out other stuff. I'm just wondering how long it was. Thursday afternoon in late August. So I guess it would have to be Thursday the 21st or Thursday the 28th. So at least over a month. Yeah, it was at least a month before her birthday. It was in August. I like that idea. Yeah, he started planning her birthday early. Hopefully set a reminder in his calendar for every <laughs> other year because he cannot forget again. I don't think that that's going to happen again. I know some people have joked around about how they think it's going to happen again at some point in the future. And I'm like, no. I think that that would give Robin, I think that she would get off on murdering him because that's justifiable homicide. You're allowed to murder someone if you have a really, really good reason. I don't know, but you're getting more suspicious to me by the day. <laughs> you have any dates and shrink wrapping? Throwing poor Kyle in with this serial killer party. and Kyle deserves what's coming to him. Oh, and I, I don't have any dates or poison, I'm afraid. All right. Shall we get into it? We shall. Yeah. So we're at chapter 66, and this is the one where we have the interview with Gloria Conti. So the epigraph for this one is, speak, thou frail woman, speak with confidence. I mean, this one's fairly obvious, right? Gloria Conti mm -hmm. gets to tell her story. And I also like how it's sort of giving Gloria her power back, you know, telling her to speak with confidence. That's so true. Gloria's whole story is about how she was in a terrifying situation. She felt powerless. And knowing Margot gave her the confidence and the strength to break free. So yeah. she she's not frail. She has what it takes. And we get to hear about how that happened. I mean, it's because of Margot that Gloria is even here to speak with them. Because I, I'm very sure that if Gloria hadn't left, that Luca would have killed her. There's no question in my mind. Yeah, I agree. The chapter opens with, The following evening, Strike and Robin sat down together on the same side of the partner's desk. They were alone in the office for the first time since the night Strike had given her two black eyes. The lights were on this time. There were no glasses of whiskey in their hand, but each of them was very conscious of what had happened on the previous occasion, and both felt a slight self-consciousness which manifested itself on Strike's side in a slightly brisker tone as they set up the computer monitor so that both could see it well, and on Robin's in focusing herself on all the questions she wanted to ask Gloria. Can I just say, I love the reminder that it's partner's desk and that they usually have their own side and now they're sharing a side. Why do you like that? Because I don't know. I'm I just kidding. find it I'm so totally cute. Kidding. I'm oh, totally okay. kidding. <laughs> I was like, do you not get it? I would of course I get of it. all people to understand. Yes, I love it too. It's wonderful. I just like imagine that they're both like, be cool, be cool, be cool. Yeah, I got it. I do like though that they're both conscious of what happened it's an acknowledgement that something had happened right this makes me laugh because when you put it on paper nothing actually really happened like they had a bit of a chat and they said oh you're my best friend you too and they had a curry there wasn't like an almost kiss neither of them actually made a move so what they're self-conscious about is entirely what's going 
on inside their own heads. But the fact that they know, even though they only technically have access to the inside of their heads, that something was going on for both of them, right? It's one of those like enchanted moments where they both felt something passing through the other's head. Even though nothing was said, they both felt the possibility in the air between them. And that's what happened. Does that make any sense? No, totally. Something did happen, right? Mm -hmm. These walls were broken down. So Yeah. yeah, it's a big deal. And they both know it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And they've both marked, well, or at least Robin has, that since that night, things have changed. That strikes being more open, right? So yeah, something did happen, even though technically nothing happened. I also really like that in this bit, we get to see the slight differences in their coping strategies that I think are really in line with with how they deal with stuff throughout these books. So Strike is acting briskly. He's trying to give off the impression of being colder and more distant than he is, right? So he's building up a wall between them and preventing intimacy. Robin is just doing her best to think about something else. She's in the denial phrase where she's like, I'm going to focus on these questions and this thing, it's not here because I can't see it. I can't read suddenly. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly that. So I don't know. I just think that that little bit is really consistent with who they've been throughout these entire novels and how they deal with feelings. I think that's accurate and hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I also like that they're both feeling this self-consciousness because I'd argue that this is maybe new territory for Strike. He's usually pretty confident with Mm -hmm. women, right? But this is a new place for him with Robin. And I don't think it's something he's ever experienced before. So I like this little reminder of him feeling that. Yeah, this new place that you're talking about. I get the sense that Strike has never, (laughs) the only word I can think of for it is pined. He's never pined for someone before. It seems to me that there's never been a gap of time between him meeting a woman and being interested in her and then sleeping together and then starting a relationship, right? Because we know he fell right into bed with Charlotte. The only one we don't know about how the relationship started is Tracy, right? So this state he's in, he's like, I have feelings. I've had them for a long time and I'm, I'm not acting on them. I'm actively trying to hide them or I have been trying to hide them and it must be hard for him because he's a man of action isn't he he Mm -hmm. likes acting on stuff so how is he supposed to deal with this I can't or won't act on it yeah I am curious about Tracy too I suppose we can't know for sure but I don't think he's ever been in love before and not acted on it in this way Mm -hmm. certainly not in a situation where the stakes were so high like this I think it's sweet. I like that because it puts him on more of an equal footing. Like we talk about how he's so much more experienced than Robin or, or she thinks maybe that he's more experienced, but he's, he's really not in this specific way, is he? No. And I mean, he's never been married before, so. That's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was barely married really, but well, her heart still. wasn't really in it. But Matthew and Robin didn't break up constantly and get back together. So mm-hmm. she does have experience in things that he doesn't. Yeah, that's very true. I think you could say that this is the first time that like, you know, we were talking about earlier about how strikes a man of action and not doing anything about his feelings is probably just eating away at him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that this is the first time that he's ever taken the time to like properly fall in love with somebody. And it's happened so naturally and organically without him even um with him actively fighting against it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I can't I be helped. That. It's the first time he's properly, I think, fallen in love. And I think that that is just so sweet. When they finally call or FaceTime Gloria, I think it's a nice touch that it mentions the family photo in the background where Gloria is. Mm -hmm. So it's Gloria, her husband, and their three adult children. It's just this nice little reminder that despite the difficult story that we're about to hear, 
Gloria has persevered and I like to think that she has a happy life. It really feels like Gloria is kind of living the dream out in the mm -hmm. French countryside with her classy house, with its library and her handsome husband bringing her wine, a German shepherd. It's all very classy and attractive and pleasant, isn't it? She's not doing too badly, is she? No, it's just nice to start this off with that because, you mm -hmm. know, it's not a very good story that we're about to hear. No, it's not. I feel like there's something important in how Robin thinks that out of everyone they've interviewed in this case, Gloria looks the most like her younger self. What do you both hmm. think? Because I don't think it has anything to do with aging or anything. I think it's most of the witnesses or suspects are hiding things, they're concealing things, concealing their true self, making themselves better than they were or are. And I think Gloria is one of the only ones who gives the full truth, the good and the bad of herself. And she looks the closest to herself because she gives the most honest interview. Oh, well. And I'm not counting Dr. Gupta because Robin never met him. Mm -hmm. Because I think he too was very honest, but I really like that. Yeah, I was going to say it's just because, well, she was quite young. She was only what? 19? Yeah. I mean, were Janice and Irene that much older? I don't think they were that much older. Yeah, maybe not. So I think you might be right. I think that's a, a really interesting and insightful observation about, I don't know, your inner self reflecting on your outer self. Mm -hmm. That sort of you, your personality shows itself as you age in, in your face. Just reminds me of that Shel Silverstein poem, actually. Oh, yeah. I love that one. You know that one where the beautiful people are, are beautiful no matter what, and the people who are ugly inside it shows up on their face. And now that I'm thinking about it, when Strike asks in the previous chapter if anyone they met has ever really changed in the last 40 years, mm -hmm. I think that maybe Gloria has changed. I think that like with Robin, she's become more of her true self. Oh, I love that. I do too. And she has changed. She says at the end that she has never again told another lie about herself, right? That's a huge yeah. change from who she was at this time. And she put in the work to do that because of what this experience taught her. She too is exceptional. Exceptional. Yeah. They should start a club. The exceptionals. The exceptionals. <laughs> yeah. I love that. They sound like superheroes. They kind of are. <laughs> Okay, here's another thing that I want your thoughts on. What do you think about Gloria's husband not giving her the emails? I don't think it's quite the same as Matthew because Robin thinks of Matthew here. And maybe mm -hmm. it's because of the motivations behind it. I guess I'm just, I am not as mad at him as I was with Matthew. Yeah, I guess from what we know, the motivations are, could be different. I mean, Matthew, we know very clearly was being controlling and jealous and spiteful and mean in his motivations, right? He wasn't doing it because he cared about Robin. He was doing it because mm -hmm. he wanted to keep her away from what she loved, right? Yeah. Whereas Hugo, he definitely just does seem to be genuinely motivated by concern for Gloria's well-being. He does genuinely just think that she won't want to. There's still quite a lot of benevolent sexism. I mean, you, you hear about the two types of sexism, benevolent and hostile. This benevolent sexism, taking it for granted that he's the one who knows what's best for Gloria, that he, he'll know what she wants. He doesn't have to ask her. Thinking he has the right to sort of control her communications in order to just keep it from her. Even if there are good motivations, it it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So if I were Gloria, I'd, <laughs> I'd have been furious with him. Not as bad as Matthew, but it's revealing at the end that he clearly doesn't have a problem with her doing the interview when he comes mm -hmm. nicely to refill her wine, etc. 
So that's yeah. a point in his favor, I guess. Yeah. If I were Gloria, we'd have been in a fight for sure. Oh, for yeah. sure. I would have been furious. Yes. But the, yeah, the motivations do matter to me. I'm not screaming at my book for her to leave him the way I was at the end of Career of Evil, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, he does seem pretty supportive. It seems like he's checking in on her because he knows what she's about to tell them is hard for her. So he mm -hmm. wants to make sure she's okay. Yeah. And if it had been Robin and Matthew in that position, then Matthew would have been furious. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He wouldn't have wanted her to do that at all. Yeah. Ugh. Why am I mad at Matthew all over again right now? I mean, isn't that just the low grade state of being? We're always yeah. just a little mad at Matthew wherever <laughs> we are, aren't we? It's going to get worse once we go back to Cuckoo's Calling. Oh, and no. oh man. I hope oh. you're ready to be mad at Matthew. God. <laughs> Oh, I forgot how much I hated him in those books because now we've been mostly without him for a whole book and it's been so glorious. My God, yeah. when we get to Lethal White, I'm going to lose my mind with anger. Okay. Yeah. I was mad at him really early on. The first time he opened his mouth, I was like, what the hell is this guy's problem? <laughs> <laughs> Just Matthew, isn't it? <laughs> All right. But then they begin the interview and Gloria yes. asks if she can tell her story. So she tells this whole story that begins really tragically where she loses her entire family in a fire and then is raised by her grandparents. And she tells how she became obsessed with the Godfather and this whole idea of that kind of life. I think it's really an interesting connection to the theme of identity with Gloria trying to find hers in fantasy. Mm. And I also, I guess I can relate to becoming obsessed with something like she did. <laughs> I mean, hi, that's why we're all here. Yeah. When she said I cleaved to that movie, I'm like, Gloria, why are you coming at me like this? What did I do? Is to this be Joe attacked? coming at us? Yeah, just <laughs> at me next time, Joe. Damn. Yeah, ouch. <laughs> Gloria's doing her Godfather podcast, but it's with like CB radio. <laughs> oh, I think back then you could do zines. She's doing a Godfather zine. What's that? Like printed on actual paper. <laughs> like they did them in Star Trek where they printed out the slash fanfic into little okay. back in the original Star Trek. Yeah, zines. They were really popular in the 90s too. I'm wondering, so we know that one of Strike's favorite movies is The Godfather 2, don't we? I wondered what he thought about Gloria cleaving to The Godfather if he likes it too. <laughs> Can I also say that this little line here, after Robin says, I'm so sorry to Gloria, Strike gave a kind of commiserative growl. <laughs> sorry but that is so funny he can only make noises of sympathy <laughs> so this is so funny to me because yeah. that is me yeah I, he's like <laughs> i struggle so much with situations like this and knowing what the right thing is like what do i say yeah. i relate to that so much that yeah i laughed at that too but probably in a different way than you are laughing at it <laughs> Uh, a commiserative well, growl. <laughs> it's good that he's got Robin because she clearly knows how to just say the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then he can just like agree with it. It's like, I know that that's the right thing to say, but I, I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I feel for him in this moment. Oh, commiserative growl. I just, I mean, anytime he makes any kind of animal noises, I'm here for it. But commiserative ones are, are especially good. Just throw it on the list of animal comparisons. Yeah. Anyway, to get back to, you know, the actual plot of this book. I love the way 
Gloria's story explores the dynamics of abusive relationships, mm -hmm. like in a really explicit way. It shows how women become trapped in these relationships. It makes you feel for her being too afraid to leave, being unable to leave. And I think it's a pretty accurate portrayal of an abusive man as well. Yeah, it's really terrifying, actually. Definitely. There's this little part where she explains that she told Irene all sorts of made up things about being involved with a crime mm -hmm. family. You know, mm -hmm. when Irene initially tells Strike and Robin all of these things about Gloria's criminal connections, Janice says not to believe her. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't. But we're seeing that Irene wasn't actually lying or making that up. She was told these things. It's yeah. done in such a clever way where what Irene says seems fantastical. Because it is. Gloria mm -hmm. made it up. But it doesn't mean that Irene was lying or exaggerating. Yeah, you've pointed that out before, the way that Irene is so carefully discredited throughout mm -hmm. the whole book. And then you start to realize that, oh, wait, it's so well done. Kind of shows that Irene was a bit gullible, too, doesn't it? Yeah. Like that she's not a great judge of character or truth. She believed Gloria's ridiculous stories yeah. she believed janice telling her that Duthwaite was gay she's pretty gullible and probably mm -hmm. easy to manipulate isn't she which makes her the perfect friend for for janice yeah janice a line that really stands out to me next where gloria says when you're living a lie nothing's more threatening than people who tell the truth mm -hmm. and i guess that applies to irene as well because gloria and irene used to talk so badly about margot to each other but it seems like the real reason is because Margot saw through both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it just stands out to me because I feel like I've experienced that where people don't like you if you don't fall for their facade, you know? Mm -hmm. This line, I really like it. When you're living a lie, nothing's more threatening than people who tell the truth. It makes me think of, I've often found it to be the case that the things which anger me in other people are the things that remind me of myself, like the parts of myself that I don't like, that I try to pretend aren't there, right? So we get defensively angry to stop ourselves from having to examine our own behavior. And it feels like the same kind of thing, right? Because when someone hits that part of you that you're ashamed of, that you're lying, that you know isn't true, you're going to lash out. It's I found that in my own life, working on understanding my own issues with people that that's been helpful i did not really relevant to the book just very much a truth in this bit isn't it well i mean i think it's always relevant when we can find things and learn how to apply them to ourselves and mm -hmm. learn from it yeah and rolling is she's just so good at getting at those truths that hit you and you're like oh wow yeah that's very true she has a lot of insight into people i think this bit in the meeting with that disgusting creep Brenner, where he says, people are always asking me what it's like working with a lady doctor. And if I ever meet one, I'll be able to tell them what an absolute shit. Seriously. I'm just happy he's dead so that I don't have to invite <laughs> him to my dinner party. You know, bring him back just to kill him again. <laughs> I'm tempted. Don't tempt me. I say talking about fictional characters. Yeah. <laughs> he's saying that her swearing makes her not a lady. So he doesn't work with a lady doctor because I guess encroaching on the male sphere, acting like a male means she's not a lady. But I'm sure that he doesn't think very well of her skills as a doctor, probably assumes that she's not actually qualified. So Brenner is the Morris of the practice, basically. Yeah, Brenner is the Morris, except possibly even worse than actual Morris. Well, I don't know. Morris did sexually assault somebody who oh, they were supposed God. to be. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. They're both pretty awful. A lot of parallels there. I guess if he'd wanted to send a dick pic, he would have had to use a Polaroid runner. They didn't have cell phones back then, right? He would have had to stick it in a Christmas card. Put it in the post. <laughs> Yeah, but Margot's response to this absolute creep is amazing because she just pulls out a Simone de Beauvoir quote. Man is defined as a human being and a woman as a female. Whenever she behaves as a human being, she is said to imitate the male. Responding to gross misogynists by just whipping out quotes from powerful feminist theorists is just chef's kiss, Margot. I want to be your best friend. Margot is a queen. I love it. She's badass and she's just so awesome. I love her so much. This next part, we finally find out why the Ricci's were at the Christmas party and it has nothing yeah. to do with Margot. Gloria says that she had ended things with Luca after he choked her and left bruises around her neck. And Luca showed up with his backup, his dangerous father and cousin, to tell her my father wanted to meet my girlfriend. Basically, that she doesn't get a say. They're not breaking up. She's not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, remember who I am. You don't have any control or any say here. It must have been absolutely terrifying. So the fact that we now know that Luca strangled Gloria is terrifying. Because in situations of domestic violence... When a woman is strangled by her partner, so the likelihood that he'll strangle her again rises tenfold, and the likelihood that he'll murder her rises nearly eightfold. It is the biggest red flag that there is. If your partner strangles you, you need to run because he will end up murdering you. So the fact that he did this, and then she had the courage to break up with him, and then he... Yeah he pulls this shit and shows up to terrify and coerce her into going back to him is just absolutely spine chilling is it awful of me that i kind of hope luca does come back solely so that robin and cormoran can get him prison for life with their crime solving skills i just want him to face justice for something yeah, I think that that's a good possibility. I don't think that she's just introducing the Ricci's for nothing. I think mm -hmm. there's a possibility that they could come back. And who better to bring them to justice than Robin and Strike? Oh, I feel like that would be Robin's personal triumph. Taking down a whole crime syndicate. But not only that, taking down the men who hurt, she clearly feels for Gloria. She clearly felt for Kara. Being able to get justice for those women i think would be particularly powerful for robin i'm still not convinced like you yeah both, i know but i just want it that's kind of how i feel about whitaker i want him to go down for anything yes strike gets to bring whitaker to justice robin gets these creeps we will see i know it's not likely i just want it to happen i'm putting it on my vision board gloria tells them how she went to margo for the pill because she was certain that Luca wanted to trap her by getting her pregnant. But it had happened anyway because she had been sick at the summer barbecue. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank our friend Sienna for DMing me about this. Just so we can clear it up a little bit. A couple episodes back, we were talking about Gloria being sick at the barbecue. Strike's theory was that Gloria was sick because she was poisoned. And Robin thought that it was because she was pregnant. Pools, what you said, I thought you were saying that Robin was right. I know that that's not what you meant no. to say. So Gloria explains that she had had a stomach bug at the party and that's yeah. why she ended up pregnant because she mm -hmm. couldn't keep her pill down. Yeah. So Gloria's statement here is that neither Stryker Robin were correct. However, Gloria does not realize the actual truth when Janice confesses later 
she says that Gloria was the only one who had a big glass of the punch. So strike was right. Yeah. And Robin was right too, that she was the one who was pregnant and had the abortion, but yeah, I didn't mean she was pregnant at that time. Mm -hmm. Robin came to the right conclusion, but through the wrong avenue. She was wrong. She was, she wasn't throwing up because she was pregnant. She's throwing up because she was poisoned. She wasn't pregnant at that time. Robin was just right that Gloria was the one who had the abortion, right? Yeah. So I should be more clear about my time frame when I'm speaking, but yeah. It's easy to get this stuff mixed up. It also just makes me realize that had Janice not poisoned the punch, that Gloria probably wouldn't have gotten pregnant because she wouldn't have thrown up her pill. Oh, wow. And she wouldn't have had to have the abortion that seems to still affect her. So it's just, you know, Janice really, she really sucks. Wow. I'm just enjoying every second of it. It's just causing absolute chaos and turmoil through so many people's lives because she just wants to do stuff. And yeah, she's awful. I feel so bad for Gloria. We all know what happens next where Margot does help Gloria get the abortion and not just by setting it up, but she emotionally supports her. She goes with her and throughout the entire thing, she's there. And it leads up to what I think is one of the best and most important lines of the book. Margot said, we aren't our mistakes. It's what we do about the mistake that shows who we are. That's such a good line. Yeah, it just feels very Dumbledore to me, very wise. (laughs) It feels like the equivalent of it is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. Mm -hmm. Right. I can see why this stuck with Gloria. And I also think that there are ways we can tie this to the themes of the novel or even the entire series with growth and healing identity. It just, it also feels very fitting for both Strike and Robin as well. Mm -hmm. So I love that line. I think it's, it's amazing. It is a great line. The fact that Margot at 29 had already done so much good in the world, good for the people around her. If she'd been allowed to live her full life and was now 80 years old, how many more people would she have helped? You know, how much more good would she have done? It makes me really sad that she never got to get beyond 29 because she was already so amazing, you know? So then we get to the day that Margot disappeared and Strike asked Gloria to go through that. Here we have a few clues, a few little tidbits here. The first thing that stands out to me is when Gloria said that Irene was funny about Janice and that they were supposed to be such great friends. I'm guessing from the kind of person that Irene is, I think she very much needs to feel superior to Janice. She needs to be the the friend who has it all, who has it together, and she can sort of bestow her blessings upon the inferior friend. So Janice turning down Larry would have been a huge affront to Irene because Irene's saying, what, Larry's, you know, he's not good enough for you. You think you can Mm -hmm. do better? It would have been Janice not staying in her place, right? Not knowing that she's supposed to have the inferior man. Also, can I just say that I love the mention of James Can here. She used to say that Janice needed to learn to cut her cloth, that she was deluded waiting for someone like James Can to show up and sweep her off her feet. Because when we go back to the beginning of the book, when they had the interview with Janice, Janice says, Irene watched way too many Godfather movies. We saw the first one together at the cinema, and I went back and saw it again twice more on my own. James can, you know, she sighed. My dream man. <laughs> oh, that's the interview with Janice. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess she's not shy about her celebrity crushes. I mean, I can, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can definitely relate. I also think it's just, you know, that they were supposed to be such good friends as maybe a little bit of a hint that things aren't really that great between them, even though Irene doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. She's going to find out, but, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> she is definitely going to find out. I don't mean to laugh. That's not funny, but you know what I mean. Oh, it's a little funny. It's a tiny bit funny with the <laughs> Lambuna, you know. Yeah, I do know. We're also told here that Irene had been trying to set Janice up with Larry for ages and Janice finally agreed. And we know that this is important because Janice only agreed to go out with him in order to have access to concrete. Mm -hmm. So the timing is important because her agreeing to go out with him is just all mixed in with her plotting this murder. Yeah, it is. It's really twisted. I love her as a villain. She's very calculating and clever. She's much smarter than Creed, as we get to find out in the chapter after next. It's weird because she is, but she's also just so lucky sometimes yes. that it's actually infuriating that she got that lucky. Strike said the same thing in Cuckoo's Calling, that Bristow was yeah. just outrageously lucky. So we've got in books one and now book five, we've got just these incredibly lucky villains. And I think that Strike and Robin have their own dose of luck in catching them, don't they? The villains aren't the only lucky ones because there are so many coincidences that let Strike and Robin figure this out. I think the luck is working on both sides. <laughs> They're both manifesting. Yeah, everyone's got vision boards <laughs> at the Wazoo. I'm just trying to figure out what it all means. Uh, I mean, they're books, right? They have to have a certain aspect of that. Yeah, there's going to be a coincidence. Sorry to bring it to that, but you know. <laughs> I know, I know. It just struck me. I, I don't know why I'm thinking about this right now, but I'm suddenly interested in Janice even changing her name to BD. Because, Ooh, yeah. you know, Irene says she changed her name to BD. I, she must have legally changed it. It just makes me think of Leda and keeping the name Strike or wanting to change her name. I don't know. It probably has nothing to do with it. It just popped in my head. No, it's interesting because, well, I guess when we get to 71, we'll hear more about her childhood. She had an abusive father, right? Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, and I've we've speculated that as, yeah we've speculated about nankaro senior and what his relationship with lita and ted was like so maybe there is a bit of a hint there of wanting to escape yeah. the, the your father's name right we're gonna have to put a pin in that yeah put a pin in it come back to yeah. it here's some more things i don't know if we'll call them clues but i think we're getting to the point of the book where puzzle pieces are starting to fit together i'm ready to call these clues okay all right i'm we'll absolutely ready to call them clues the first one that i noted is that gloria says margo had a donut that she was saving to eat before she left and that this was a habit of hers to eat something sweet at the end of the day which is important because janice would need to know that it was a routine that's definitely a clue. Learning that Margot ate a donut at the end of the day in a predictable way and that that donut was easily accessible to anyone in the practice is absolutely a huge clue, especially if drugging is in our minds. So I know that the first time I read this book, I'd noticed all of the mention of poisons and drugging, and I was really worried that somehow Robin was going to get poisoned by something in a drink. Little did we know that Strike had already been poisoned, right? Yeah, I didn't know, but that was amazing. The foreshadowing works enough to get us thinking about drugging, and then yeah. we've got she ate a donut. I think it's definitely a, an important clue. Gloria also says that Margot had thrown the chocolates away, but then retrieved them from the bin. We, you know, we can't know her thought process for sure, but I think it's safe to assume that she assumed they were from Janice and threw them away, but then mm -hmm. thought, 
no, I, I want to do something about this. And that's why she took them out. Well, Jenna says later that she was afraid Margaret was going to get them tested, right? So I'm yeah. guessing that was exactly what she was going to do. I think that the fact that Gloria mentions the card attached to them wasn't signed is also significant. So it makes me wonder if, if that sparked Strike's memory about the chocolates he ate at Christmas. Because he said they were from a client. Yeah, I tried to check to see if there was a note, at least not in the chapter where he eats them at Christmas. It doesn't say anything. It just says that they're addressed to both him and Robin. Yeah. And perhaps the note just said thank you. And they mm. assumed it was from a client. So it fits with Janice's MO. I don't think Strike thinks too hard about where no. the chocolate's in front of him. Although he will <laughs> after this book. Yeah, he sure will. <laughs> so the next one is Gloria has no idea about Brenner's addiction when Strike mentions it. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's because it didn't exist. Yeah. But of course, we don't know as we're reading it that it doesn't exist. We could just assume that maybe Gloria didn't know. Yeah, I love how in this interview, as well as Creed's coming up, it becomes more and more obvious which things that Janice has said over the course of the book are made up. It's so clever. I feel like she's getting more and more obvious with the clues that she's putting in here. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, just in case you hadn't noticed, yes. I feel like she's putting neon signs on things at this point. Yeah, we feel like that now. Yeah, neon signs we all missed. Yeah, neon signs just glazed right by. And I think the last one is just when Gloria explains how Margot left and she slips a little. Yeah. It's explained away by the rain, but in hindsight, we know that that's because the drug was already taking effect. Yeah, she it turns over on her heel, right? It's a little wobbly yeah. ankle. Oof. It makes me wonder if Theo hadn't shown up, hmm. you know, would Janice's plan have worked? It's hard to say because I don't know what time Margot ate the donut, but I feel like if she would have been able to leave sooner, maybe the effects wouldn't have been as strong and she would have made it to Una. And I hate thinking that way because I mean, I think we all want to think, you know, what if, but yeah, that's heartbreaking because Gloria says that she brought it into her right before she saw her last patient before Theo. So I'm going to guess that, yeah, she just scarfed it down right then before her last appointment. Like I would, because you don't want to no, be same. sitting there with the donut staring at you, trying to focus <laughs> on, you know, your patient or whatever. You're going to eat the donut. Right. Of course. Of course. Maybe I'm just, you know, a, a carbaholic. Who isn't going to eat the donut? Come on. Right. So then Theo adds at least 15 minutes to her yeah. leaving. And Gloria says she was in there for longer than she had expected too, right? Mm -hmm. So so at least 15 minutes, maybe even longer, that would have gotten Margot to the pub. She'd have felt the effects while sitting there with Una. Yeah. Janice's plan would have failed because Margot would have gone to the police about being drugged, right? Oh, it's just, again, that bit of luck. Yeah. And she would have already been suspicious of Janice. Oh, yeah. It's heartbreaking. So lucky. At this point, Luca was too good a suspect, you know? Yeah. You're near the end of the book and this guy looks so obvious. You're like, so it's, there's no way it's him. <laughs> right? right. And then Gloria says she met with him five minutes afterwards and Nico was in the hospital. When you're reading a JK Rowling novel and you're a few chapters away from the end, you know that a huge mind blowing twist is about to hit you in the face and that it's definitely not the person who looks really obvious right now. No way it was Ricci. I mean, I feel like I've said a million times I didn't suspect him, but I'm saying it again. I did for a little bit, but by this point, it was obvious it wasn't him just because he's too, too obvious. Gloria says that Margot saved her life and she says, it was only after she disappeared that I realized what she'd been to me. She tells another awful story of Luca beating her and as it's happening, she imagined Margot there 
And Gloria said, I'm going, Margot. I'm going where he'll never find me. Besides that being terrible and sad, it also feels really inspiring to me when people make something good out of something terrible. It feels like this was the case for Gloria. Earlier, Gloria says that she wasn't brave like Margot. I'd like to think that eventually she would have found the strength to leave, but it feels like Margot's absence forced her to find that bravery within herself and she was able to do it. And then she says, because it had clicked in my head at last, she told me I needed to be brave. It was no good waiting for anyone else to save me. I had to save me. I completely agree with all of that. This bit where Gloria talks about Margot sitting in her head watching her. It makes me think about how Robin has been doing this too for mm -hmm. this entire novel. She's holding an imaginary Margot in her head. And yeah. it just it feels so powerful to me that even 40 years after her death, Margot is living in the minds of people who loved her. And she's such a strong and vibrant person. She's taking up residence in the head of someone who never even met her, who was born a decade after her death, right? And I just think this whole thing is such a beautiful testament to the power that one person can have, the impact they can make on the world. If we're going back to Dumbledore again, there's that line from Harry Potter, you think the dead we loved have ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? Yeah. In a book where someone that Strike loves passes away, I think it's very comforting, this reminder that the people who've left us do live on in us. Oh, you're getting yeah. right in my feels there. Oh, I know. And it's, uh, it's also got me thinking of this Terry Pratchett quote. Do you know that a man is not dead while his name is still spoken? So Margot, she's still living. She's still around. It's just inside the people who are speaking her name, you know? Which actually, that makes me think of earlier in the chapter, Gloria says Margot's name and Robin thinks that it's probably the first time she's done it in a while. And, and yeah. doesn't say the same thing about Roy Phipps earlier as well. Yeah, that they never said her name, but now they yeah. are saying her name and she's, it's like she's alive again, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh. I, Margot is my favorite of, God, are we just going to say of the victims in yeah. these novels? I guess. But yeah, Margot is by far the one I love the most just for the impact that she's had. Oh, now I'm having emotions. <laughs> God. I got to turn back to my, uh, the strike grunting. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to do growl. this, so let's just move on. But also just good for Gloria. I mean, she came up with a great plan and she found a way out. And I'm so proud of her for yeah. doing that and finding that strength. She was amazing. Good for her. She says, even if you find out Luca was behind what happened to Margot, and I have to have that on my conscience forever, I owe her the truth. That woman saved me, and I've never, ever forgotten her. She was one of the bravest, kindest people I've ever known. God, that makes me tear up. I love Margot. Also, how's Gloria going to feel when she finds out that she brought her the poison donut? Oh, God. That's awful. Yeah, sorry. That just popped right into my head and it's a very unpleasant thought no i know but i mean i think it's the thing that we do all the time if you look mm -hmm. in hindsight you know if, if i had done this differently you know we can never know those things those things aren't our fault but yeah we all tend to do that i hope gloria doesn't because it wasn't her fault no of course not yeah i hope that this whole thing brings her healing yeah rather than more guilt although it, i do worry about her having to come testify because she will have to come testify. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the story of the abortion doesn't have to come into it because obviously that 
brings her a lot of pain, but also it makes me kind of terrified for Luca to be around because it will probably be highly publicized. So, you know, it does worry me a little bit. I I know that it's not realistic to want to see all these trials happen because at that point, Strike and Robin's most of their work is done. But out of all of them, I would really be interested in seeing this trial. Yeah, I would love to see them in trial at one point. And this one would be a good one. Yeah, if this was real, I would be glued to like I was back in the day, glued to court TV and I would watch every second of it. <laughs> I've never I didn't know court TV was a thing that existed. Oh, my God. I, I used to watch. Yeah, it too. I would watch it all day. I watched so many trials on court TV. Yeah, I loved it. So I don't know anything about the British legal system or the legal system in general. So would the abortion have to come up? She would need to testify about getting sick at the barbecue, right? Mm -hmm. She'd have to testify about the donut and the events of the last day. But would the sort of more personal traumatic stuff come up for her? Well, here's why I think it might. I don't know anything about the British legal system either, but just what I know about the American one, you know, before a witness gets to testify, they have to give declarations and interviews. So it will probably be known is my Mm -hmm. assumption. Any good defense lawyer is going to want to bring up reasonable doubt. And this kind of provides someone other than Janice with a good motive. So I think that it could possibly come up. Now, on the other hand, you know, you can have the prosecution side trying to argue to keep it out. Well, I'm thanks. I'm now worried too. I (laughs) mean, hopefully there's a way that prosecution could say this evidence would put the witness in danger. Can we seal it? Right. Hopefully. Yes. I, Yeah. yeah. Again, I don't know how it works. Yeah. If we have any British lawyers or solicitors listening, (laughs) please let us know. Anyway, that's that's a hard chapter, but it's it's a good one, I think. There's a lot of good stuff to talk about. I agree. I really like that chapter. I really like getting to see Gloria. It feels like a momentous chapter because they've been looking for her for 60-odd chapters, right? Yeah. And now they don't really interrogate her. She just weaves this whole uninterrupted story, right? Yeah, what a nice contrast to just a couple chapters ago where they also have been looking for Douthwaite the whole time, but yeah. he he doesn't uh, get to say a single word. And then here Gloria is just spilling no. everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So on to chapter 67. So in this chapter, Strike and Robin regroup after the interview with Gloria and they come to some illuminating conclusions. So the epigraph to this chapter reads, there by the uncertain glimpse of starry night and by the twinkling of their sacred fire, he mote perceive a little dawning sight. After everything, they both have this kind of light bulb moment or dawning sight that make all the pieces start to fit together. Exactly. I like that it's the stars that are providing the light here. (laughs) Eh? Wink, wink. Uh. Because... Well, throughout the whole book, it's been the stars. But Talbot's first foray into astrology in the notebook is what draws Robin's attention to the fact that, well, the clue she discovers that the struggling women's heights are the wrong way around, right? Yeah. So Strike and Robin are talking about the case. And even though Luca was with Gloria, Strike is throwing out the possibility that maybe he had an accomplice. And he starts talking about Creed's unwitting accomplices and how hard it is to believe that this could have been a one-person job. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think that, you know, Janice did have unwitting accomplices. She absolutely, yeah. Larry, who provided the concrete. Yeah. And it kind of seems odd to me that he never thought 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when you go out on a date with a girl and she asks you for concrete. It seems so weird. <laughs> and then her boss goes missing a few yeah. days later and you're like, no, nope, this is normal. <laughs> I guess this is exactly what strike does in this point that Robin gets on him not to do right. We're yeah. not blaming Larry, but it's just odd. I mean, I guess you just don't jump to murder, but I, I don't guess know. Larry was a bit simple too, yeah. wasn't he? I mean, according to Irene, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, God, I think we are doing the exact same thing that Robin Exactly. Does. Yeah. Yeah. It's just odd to me. But um, the next one is, I mean, obviously the Athorns, and I feel so bad for them. And God, it was just such a risk, wasn't it, that she involved them? It was a huge risk. Paid off, but. Yeah. There's a bit where Robin is talking about people generalizing from past experiences and projecting their biases onto people and strike is she says don't blame them right yeah the thing is this is exactly what corman himself has been doing with janice and what he berates himself for doing he's seen janice through the lens of all the nurses he's known right and that's what sort of blinded yeah. him to her possibility as a suspect I do like seeing this conversation between them because Robin, you know, she kind of calls him out and he doesn't take it personally. They have a good conversation. I always like seeing them talk about, yeah. about things. Yeah. <laughs> such, <laughs> such a specific praise. Yeah. <laughs> when they talk about stuff, that's really my favorite part, you know, chef's kiss. I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Like they're sharing their ideas and yeah. they actually listen to each other instead of just talking past each other they actually care about what each other has to say and sort of take it in and adjust their opinions if they have a good yeah. argument actually this next bit we had a listener send in a question to us just yesterday actually and i'm gonna read it her name is elizabeth and here's what she said i was reading trouble blood alongside your latest few episodes and wondered what you thought of the bit where they are randomly talking about max and robin tells cormoran that he is gay and corm didn't know this seems a bit incongruous to me that he didn't ever inquire around the issue for the fact that corm would surely ruminate on robin living alone with a guy and wonder how close the two of them are what the deal is with their relationship and could he be a threat Huh. So that's her question. I know we've talked before and joked about Strike being jealous of Morris, but I don't really see him as a generally jealous person. I think that only happened with Morris because he was hearing that Morris was interested and seeing those late night texts. I don't know. I just didn't strike me as odd. It seems more strange to me that Ilsa didn't mention it in passing, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I actually agree with you that Strike isn't the type of guy to be randomly paranoid about all men or to think that men and women can't just be friends or to view every man as a threat i think he's only ever been jealous or you know a little paranoid when he's noticed some actual evidence that's pinged his radar yeah even though in the past he's gotten it totally wrong he's not automatically in a jealous mindset i don't like think that's who people. he is yeah like some people that we could mention i just don't think that's who he is. I'm wondering if maybe Elsa did mention it and he just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> maybe Robin maybe. was like tossing her hair and he was, he was distracted <laughs> during a curry night. No, that's fanfic. That's not real life. I was just going to say they don't have curry nights pool. They had at least one curry night. Okay. After Lisa yes, White. Okay. One. one. 
So maybe it was then. I don't know. I feel like if it was about Robin, he would have been paying attention kind of the way that Robin tries to pay attention while not trying to seem like she's paying attention. Yeah. So maybe she didn't ever mention it, but yeah, I guess it seems weird to me that it's been almost two years and he doesn't know, but I don't think that would be the reason why. Yeah. As Robin is talking about this, she stops and apologizes because she thinks she's boring him. And he immediately says, no, you're making me think. That was cute. It makes me wonder if she ever tried to talk to Matthew about things and he was bored with her. You know, I could see him being. I mean, a hundred percent. He absolutely would be. This just made me laugh because I think it was a callback to the very beginning of the book when Strike literally fell asleep (laughs) as she was trying to tell him about basically this exact same thing. Oh my God. Yeah, you're right. right. (laughs) Maybe this isn't a Matthew comparison at all. Maybe this is beginning Strike versus now Strike. Yeah. In all fairness, he was tired and he's not bored. She doesn't bore him. Just an unfortunate coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. But he's having some realizations. He is. He realizes that Theo would have been standing outside the phone box as she was in the pouring rain only if there was someone inside he then immediately asks robin to look up fragile x syndrome which connects back to janice i don't know if i would have been able to put that together on the first read but it's there he was looking up the specific disabilities that it causes just thinking about the whole family and how they could have been involved i guess since he's realizing that someone was waiting at the end of their street And then the little bit, it was called Fragile X starting in 1991 is the thing. Yes, because earlier Janice calls it. She calls it Fragile X, yeah, but she shouldn't. And then in the meantime, Robin is also, I love that they're both having lightning bulb moments because I think this is the first time that Robin too is solving things rather than just finding evidence, right? Yeah, and I just love them kind of working alongside each other in this way. Mm -hmm. They're talking to each other and they also take moments of silence to think and they let each other think. It's good teamwork. Yeah. Yeah, they're good partners. Yeah, I'm making the little Gupta hand sign of a good team. You can't see me, but I'm doing it. We all know. (laughs) It's a harmonious team. But as Robin is looking at Talbot's notes. Is this, sorry, is this the last time we have to read Talbot's notes? Fingers crossed. Maybe. I think it is. This isn't a big one. No. But Talbot's notes start out pretty sound, right? With some basic information about the two women struggling by the phone boxes on Clark and Well Green. But then it kind of dissolves into this astrology stuff. And it says, Jupiter is currently retrograde in Pisces, meaning planet of objective truth in sign of illusion and fantasy. Mm-hmm. My first question is what does retrograde mean? Uh, I'm not an expert, <laughs> an expert in this made up field, but <laughs> I believe that when a planet is retrograde, it means that it appears to be moving backwards through the sky because okay. of something to do with its orbit. It looks like it's looping around and going backwards. And I think that that has some kind of impact on how the planet influences things or or something. But it's not clear to me. That's when it gets a little bit out of my depth, to be honest. (laughs) What is it saying in general? I mean, is this about Douthwaite since it's talking about Pisces? I think that at this point, it's not about Douthwaite yet, because I think this is the very beginning of his obsession. He hasn't yet worked everyone out into their astrological sign and diving deep into, you know, who has moles and who fits Schmidt. Yeah. It says it's currently retrograde in Pisces. So he's looking at 
the stars on the moment that Margot disappeared. He's in the stage where he's looking at her disappearance chart and trying to figure out if the stars can tell him where she is, right? Yeah. I'm wondering if there's anything in this, you know, objective truth in sign of illusion and fantasy and what that could actually mean for us in interpreting the symbolism. Is Something about the truth of the two women that Ruby saw being twisted or being not real somehow in Talbot's view. But yeah, the real thing is smaller in rain hat, taller in raincoat. Taller seems unsteady on feet. That's what Robin is latching onto here. Yeah. So this is all a little bit confusing. What happened was Ruby Elliot is driving in circles, right? There's the two women who's the flurries, which was a woman with her elderly mother. They were walking by Clark and Will Green, and that's where the van was. What happened with the real phone box on Albemarle Way is that Theo was waiting outside and got into a car mm -hmm. and Janice was waiting inside the phone booth. Ruby Elliot is driving around in circles. She just doesn't realize that it was the same phone booth that she saw Theo at. And then she saw the two women struggling. Yes. And yeah. if it had been the flurries that she saw, then the woman needing help walking would have been the shorter one. But she actually saw the taller woman needing help, which was Margot. Yes. I think that makes sense to me. And Talbot was pressuring her to change her story because he knew it couldn't have been the flurries she saw because the heights were reversed, right? Right. But she would have been changing her story to the correct answer. She just didn't realize that it was the correct answer. Right. Yeah. Because she thought, no, that's where I saw Theo. So I must have seen the other two women somewhere else. But yeah. she, like Strike said, she was lost and didn't know where she was. And yeah. Yeah. This is a confusing one. I am so impressed that Robin caught this clue and figured it out because even when it's laid out for us, I'm still like, wait. I know. <laughs> I know. Good for her. And then the chapter ends with Strike getting mad at himself for believing this phone call. And he says he thinks he's figured out why Margot would have kept the chocolates and therefore figuring out who did it. The way that Robin's like, what phone call, said Robin nervously, casting her mind back over any phone calls she'd taken over the course of the case. She's doing that thing she does where she thinks it's her fault. It's my fault. Did I screw up? No, Robin. Cameron's the idiot, not you. Come on. <laughs> Seems like they're over the self-consciousness that they were feeling in the beginning, right? Yeah, well, solving a murder will do that to you. Yeah, let's go on to chapter 68, which I am very excited for this chapter. Um, I know it's pretty awful, but there's some real good stuff in it. Yeah. So chapter 68 is the interview with Creed, and the epigraph is, An hyena was that feeds on women's flesh as others feed on grass. Translation, ew. Yeah. I mean, this is Creed, right? He's disgusting. We get to meet Creed. Reading the chapter this time, it really hit me that they didn't actually have any reason to continue with this interview. I mean, of course, they're going to do it after all the work Robin put into it. And I'm sure that Strike has some sort of personal interest and curiosity. But, you know, it tells us that he met with Brian Tucker at the office a few days before. And something tells me that was not a short meeting. But <laughs> what I mean is they're not being paid for this. They know Creed didn't kill Margot, And it's just, I just, Strike and Robin are good people. You know, they're doing this 
because they care about justice. And I, I know I go on about this a lot, but I just love every time we're reminded of it. You're so right. It's a vocation to go back to their conversation in Silkworm. It's the work itself that matters, not whether they're being paid for it, you know, but yeah, I totally agree with you and I love it. And I love them. Same. I think that they're aware that it wouldn't do their business any harm to have the publicity of getting oh, of course. to confess to something. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not why they're doing yeah. it. Obviously he has some personal interest and I also think that just for himself, he would like to. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But their primary motivation is genuinely getting justice. Gratifying though it would be to believe that he, Cormoran Strike, might trick or persuade Creed into confessing where all others had failed. Strike wasn't that egotistical. Which is hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious because that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. He was putting that on his vision board. Mm -hmm. Manifesting. Manifesting it. There's this paragraph where Strike thinks about how all of the normal tools he might use to persuade a suspect to disclose information won't work here. He has no actual power. He can't threaten him with incarceration. There's no moral code he can appeal to with Creed. But it, it's kind of also what makes the interview so satisfying because he still bests him using just his wit. Creed's ego is really his downfall because he immediately recognized Strike's intelligence and kept trying to beat him and he couldn't. Yeah, I really like the insight that we get here into the sort of the strategical side of interviewing and interrogations. It's giving us this little glimpse into the wheels that are sort of turning in Strike's head while he's doing this, not just with Creed, but in every scene in these books when he's interrogating someone, this is what's going on in the background of his mind. He's figuring out what leverage he can use, what kind of person he's interviewing, how he can persuade them, right? He's just so... Yeah incredibly smart and and this chapter is showing us that this bit here where he's thinking of creed and he's summing it up with his primary sources of enjoyment were inflicting pain and establishing dominance and it was doubtful that anything else would persuade him into disclosures so strike knows that he has to make it so that confessing and revealing the location of louise's body is something that will a inflict pain to the families mm -hmm. and B, most importantly, assert dominance over strike. Yeah, definitely. I love seeing his detective brain at work here too. I know that we all know that strike is smart, but seeing slash reading his brain kind of firing on all cylinders, trying to figure out exactly like what kind of strategy he's going to go into this interview with. It just really hammers the point home. And honestly, I have never had more of a book crush on him <laughs> than in this particular chapter yeah he's so smart yeah i'm 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 with you uh so here's something for you pools something interesting as he's driving in it says the surrounding walls were 20 feet high and as strike drove up to the front gates he could see the heads of hundreds of cyclopean security cameras on poles any thoughts oh i i have so many thoughts mostly my thoughts are that this is proof that I'm 100% correct with my Odyssey theory. He's literally driving into the cave of the Cyclops here. Yeah. And it says it in this adjective. Rowling is a deliberate writer. And I think that, yeah, this is a little pointer towards my theory right here. I always loved your theory here, but this is just Thank like you. extra. It's extra good, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's right there. Proof. It's right there. The Cyclops link is not just infer. It's explicit, isn't it? It is. And then it says, as the gates open, Strike experienced an explosion of adrenaline. And for a moment, the ghostly black and white images of seven dead women and the anxious face of Brian Tucker seemed to swim before him. This is just why I love him. I mean, I know I say this all the time, but 
he does the right things for the right reasons. Yeah. I mean, this is what he's thinking about as he's about to do this. He's thinking about the victims, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's important to me that that's what he's thinking about. And I think it would be important to Robin as well. I absolutely agree. And he's thinking about the victims throughout this entire chapter, isn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This thinking about the victims is, well, one, it's what makes this chapter really hard to read for me. Having to read the graphic things that Creed did to these women is painful. He's not letting himself get caught up in this game or wanting to best Creed just for himself. He's Mm -hmm. It reminds us that this is what he's thinking about and kind of grounding himself when he, every time he thinks about them. Yeah. I love that. He's grounding himself in the people that he's doing this for and the people who matter. Yeah. Oh gosh. I love him. Okay. I love him too. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) This next bit, when he walks through the metal detectors, I kind of wish we could have seen more dialogue here. I just want to know exactly what happened when it says, you know, good humored, inevitable amusement ensued. That does make me laugh. It reminds me a bit of Career of Evil, where he um, startles the train attendant on the way to Scotland. And the guy's like, wit ready, which I've never been able to figure out what that means. But Strike was amused then too. Yeah, apparently it means that was embarrassing. I did a little research on it and there was somebody who was also confused by that. And they were like, hey, I read this in career of evil what does this mean and yeah that's apparently what it means ah that was embarrassing okay Mm -hmm. interesting and he finds it funny so that's interesting yeah (laughs) as strike is walking with the doctor to wait in his office it says that a nurse passes him and she smiles at him and he smiles back i don't know why i like this so much it just paints this whole picture for me And I have this whole backstory in my head of the talk that's going around Broadmoor, right? I imagine that word has gotten around that Strike is there to interview Creed and everyone is aware of who he is. And I'm imagining that nurse going to like the break room and saying, I saw him. It feels like it would be a big talk. Yeah, I totally believe that he was the talk of the person in the nurse's office. I kind of like this bit because he was so surprised that they they have women working there. And it's, it's not because he thinks women can't do the job. Although I think that maybe he's imagining that the nurses need to be able to wrestle these psychotic men into submission. But I think yeah. it really stems because Strike is so chivalrous and so protective that he would want to keep any woman far away from men like Creed. I know he's just protective over women and he would want yeah. to keep them the hell away from Creed. And I just, I think it's sweet. I wouldn't want to work there with Creed. There's yeah, no God, way. No. Absolutely not. Ugh. But I mean, people may, oh, it's so sexist of him to not think that women work there. I'm like, well, maybe, but it's just because, you know, he, he's a protective chivalrous guy. I was just thinking about the ring structure of these books and how they circle around and we're circling back around to the doctor. So we started off with Gupta's interview and now we have his mirror and sort of Dr. Israel mm-hmm. and who even does the same motion, right? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's the, uh, and Hogprof talks about the ring yeah. structure, but, and I think that that is, it's absolutely correct because you can start to see these and like the bit in the last chapter that also mirrored the beginning when yeah. Robin was explaining something to strike, right? So you can see these sort of beginning and end parallels and I really like it. Yeah, definitely. I'm absolutely horrified though about this story that the doctor tells about how Creed used to reenact what happened in his basement and would do voices and force everyone around the other prisoners and the staff to listen. It's horrific. It's absolutely disgusting. I was also really grossed out by the bit about him basically producing his own hardcore pornography. I just think it's another little illustration of the link between this material that sexually objectifies and dehumanizes women and the violence that's perpetrated against women. 
As they're continuing their conversation, Dr. Bijral is talking to Strike about Creed's history. And I'm kind of curious about the story that he was going to tell about the other patient before they were interrupted. It feels like it could be one of those JK Rowling moments where something is thrown out there and then casually brought up again later. Mm. He's talking about many men in here have appallingly abusive childhoods. Dennis's childhood was pure hell, though, of course, other people have upbringings as bad and never do what Dennis did. In fact, one of our former patients, and then they're interrupted. It could mean absolutely nothing, but I am a little bit curious because it kind of also reminded me of the epilogue in Lethal White, where they're talking about Raph's childhood and Izzy is making excuses for him. Maybe this isn't something that's going to come up, but I think there is a bit of a theme here. Is this something about our choices? Yeah. It's our choices that decide who we are again. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like it's important because I'm pretty sure that we're going to hear more about Cormoran's childhood and there's, you know, a comparison to who he is versus people like Raph and Creed who also had bad childhoods. Yeah. I'm really hoping that we get a lot more about Carmen's childhood in the next book. I think we're going to. Yeah. I mean, I'm dreading it, but yeah. As painful as it was, it'll be interesting to kind of fill in the blanks a little bit. We've got more nurses in here preparing, I think, for the sort of Janice Reveal. reveal. Yeah, the nurses are piling on, but we're starting to get some non-stereotypical nurses like Marvin. It's funny because Strike assumes that the woman is Creed's nurse, but really it's this broad man who's covered in tattoos. He made a couple assumptions about nurses in this chapter, didn't he? Yeah. Ha, foreshadowing. Let's get to the interview. Yes. It feels like the game starts right away, doesn't it? Because Creed is Mm -hmm. the one who tries to get information out of Strike first by asking who he's working for. And it's kind of a bit of fun for us too as readers because we're also not completely sure at this point. We know that Brian Tucker wants this interview, but we don't know yet who killed Margot. So we're still wondering what information is Strike really trying to get here. I just, I like that Strike makes Creed speak first. Because it makes me think of the episode of The Office where Michael is trying negotiation tactics that he printed off from Google. <laughs> which was trying to make what's-his-face go first. Oh, it just suddenly made me laugh. Power move. Creed tells Strike it's a sign of narcissism to withhold information to feel power. And this made me laugh because in my personal experience, narcissists love telling other people that they're narcissists every time absolutely just like abusers love accusing other people of abuse yeah it's classic darvo for people who don't know what darvo deny attack reverse victim and offender that's exactly what what narcissists and abusers do yeah creed asked strike if he plays chess because strike uses a chess term right and strike says badly It makes me wonder if this is true. Does he play chess badly or does he just want to be underestimated by Creed? I need to know all these little details about him. I feel like if Strike knows the name of specific chess strategies, like the King's Gambit, then he's probably not too shabby. But I personally hate chess and I'm really bad at it. So I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about how often it's used in media to signal like, oh, this person is so smart. They play chess. Just let someone who's brilliant be bad at chess. I am begging. I would just like to see Strike and Robin play chess because it feels like, well, maybe I'm doing the exact same thing that you just said, but honestly, they both like puzzles. They like solving things. This isn't solving shit, is it? It's memorizing. I don't know. I don't know what chess is. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I'm not the only one who can't play chess. It, it does require strategy and logic. I could see that being something that I have no logic. Chess is also very boring. But knowing Strike, yeah, he's probably decent at chess. I could see him playing with Ted or something. I want him and Robin to play Mario Kart. I am terrible at that game. I actually just bought that yeah. for Jack yesterday. Nice. And we played it and I am so bad. Yeah. I'm also pretty bad at Mario Kart, but at least it's fun. Unlike chess. When Creed decides to guess who sent Strike, he guesses Anna. And he says that it'll have to be someone with money because Strike won't come cheap. What I love about this is that he's not accounting for who Strike is, for his heart, for his sense of justice. He's literally coming to Creed as cheap as it gets. It's completely for free. And I feel like this might be Creed's undoing because he cannot account for that moral compass and it causes him to guess wrong. Yeah. His very first question, who are you working for? He gets it wrong because Strike isn't working for anyone except justice. And that's who he's working for is so important to Creed because he's yeah. not going to give the answer for who he's working for. So yeah. it's a huge question and he gets it wrong because he has no empathy the way Strike does. Yeah, absolutely. And what else does he ask him here? Strike asks him what Creed thinks is a silly question about, do you get online munch? And Creed thinks he's wasting time. And Strike kind of responds sarcastically. But the funny thing is, is that this question turns up to be important later when Robin cracks his little code. Yeah, whether or not he can get online. Strike is just completely outsmarting him with almost every little thing he does here. He's making Creed come to him. He's not behaving like Creed expects. He's not interrogating him. He yeah. has the power here and he's making Creed fill up that space and try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it's genius. It's so much fun to read. Yeah, Strike has all of the power in this and it's... Mm. It's what? You know what it is. <laughs> Tell me, say the word. It is sexy AF. We all know it. It is. Okay, this made me think, and you guys have to tell me if this is dumb because it's very likely, but this next part, Creed goes into all of these disgusting things about his so-called victims and his whole belief system, right? And I started thinking this, his whole belief system, his creed, and then I was like, oh, is this maybe why he's called creed and i don't know if that's completely dumb but it also did make me laugh because you've already mentioned the office once but creed yeah. on the office i think was totally a serial killer so oh yeah creed was definitely a serial killer <laughs> and toby also was the scranton strangler i believe but no i really like this idea because yeah creed is a system of belief creed believes wholeheartedly that women aren't full human beings and that he's entitled to them. He's entitled to their pain and their suffering, to their bodies and to their lives. He believes it. So this mm -hmm. is misogyny and entitlement taken to its absolute extreme. So yeah, I actually quite like that. And it, it really speaks to the, he's not crazy. He's just morally bankrupt and has a faulty belief system about yeah his place in the world. I know that she puts a lot of thought into her names. Obviously we know that. So yeah, I could absolutely see Creed being a deliberate choice. Yeah. Something else that I'm wondering when Creed quotes Alistair Crowley and Strike knows that it's a Crowley quote, Creed says it's interesting reading material for a decorated soldier in the British army and Strike jokes, oh, we're all Satanist on the sly, which I love, <laughs> but Creed says, you think you're joking, but you kill and you get given a medal and called a hero and I kill and get called evil and locked up forever. At first, I just thought this was a general statement, like you as in soldiers, but 
I almost wonder if this is a clue for us about Strike and why he got his medal, because I'm assuming that what happened with Strike could be on the internet, but we know that Creed doesn't have access to it. So is this a bit of foreshadowing? I just really want to know why he got his medal. I, oh, I love Mm -hmm. this. I did not catch this. I super hope it is foreshadowing just because I too desperately need to need to know the story behind his medal. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope that this is foreshadowing that you've caught here. I don't know if it is. I just have my fingers crossed. Good catch. Thanks. We will see. We'll see. I also, we don't need to go through every single one, but I love how every time Creed tries to outsmart him by quoting something, Strike matches him and he knows what it is. And and it says that it irritates Creed and that just makes it so much more satisfying. Yes. Incredibly satisfying. And again, here's where you see the strategy. So I think that Strike proving that he knows these references is deliberate in that he's, like you said, provoking and needling Creed. Creed can't feel dominant if Strike is demonstrating he's just as smart, way smarter than Creed. So he is going to feel the need because of what Strike's doing to keep one-upping him to prove that he's the genius in the room. Yeah. And that need is going to make him screw up and reveal the info that Strike's here for, right? Yeah. I think if Strike had been interviewing someone who had a different psychology or a different need, maybe he'd have pretended not to know these references if it served that other interview better. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, this entire strategy depends on Strike being incredibly well-read and intelligent. And I love that he clearly is and that he just had all these references to hand because mm-hmm. they're pretty diverse set. You've got Curly, you've got Nietzsche, you've got H.G. Wells. I feel like he might've known Curly because Whitaker was obsessed and he remembers him quoting him. Yeah. But Nietzsche could point to him studying something regarding philosophy in uni. I'm on board the strike studied PPE at Oxford, philosophy, politics, and economics, you know, and I I feel like him knowing Nietzsche supports that. I love that we can really see strike manipulating Creed, agreeing that he's sane. Mm -hmm. It's what Creed wants to hear. He wants strike to say that because then he thinks that he can manipulate strike. Yeah, because he wants out of Broadmoor. I feel like if Creed did get what he wants and got back to prison, he'd be like, wait, shit, no, never mind. Take me back. The grass is always greener in the other prison. Yeah, that is how the saying goes. Yeah. Once they go for his eye again, he's going to be like, "Um, no, I'm good. (laughs) There's this whole part where Creed rambles on and Strike believes he's inventing to make himself seem more important. And Creed says he should have been a doctor. And it just makes me think of that conversation we had about Janice and why she became a nurse. I love how Creed is just so pathetic in this chapter. Like, should have been a doctor. Well, you won't, were you? You're a dry cleaning delivery man. And there's nothing wrong with working as dry cleaning delivery man. But he knows that he is a bit of a pathetic coward. And he feels the need to invent things to hide who he actually is and to seem grandiose. And in reality, he's he's an awful little man. I like how clearly it shows that he is a pathetic piece of shit. And his whole bragging about, oh, I have a 140 IQ. Oh, yeah. And... Strike just walked in off the street and outsmarted you in 45 minutes, right? (laughs) Which kind of makes me wonder what Strike's IQ is. But the thing is, Strike isn't the kind of person to give a shit or to be impressed by someone's IQ or to think it matters, right? But Creed hangs on to this to prove he's better than he is. It also makes me think of Janice when Strike asks if he ever killed anyone by overdose. Mm. And Creed says, it takes far more skill to disorientate them, but keep them on their feet. Any fool can shove an overdose down someone's throat. The other takes knowledge and experience. 
which is exactly what Janice had, right? Yeah. She had both knowledge and experience. This whole thing is full of what's coming up with Janice, what we're going to learn. Creed also asks him why he's so interested in drugging. Do you think Strike's asking all this because of Janice? So he knows now that Janice is poisoning people. Is he like fishing for another killer's knowledge about drugging to sort of firm up the case against Janice in his mind? I don't know. I don't know if it's that or if it's just for us, like Mm. little foreshadowing bits. Yeah. Getting that knowledge in the reader interesting yeah definitely i agree with you Lindsay. i think that it's just serving a purpose to kind of point in that direction it's one of those things that where if you missed any of the other clues it really rules out creed as the killer and and even later when they're talking about you know accounting for weight his confusion over that is a dead giveaway because janice has that knowledge and she has that experience she's able to make her murders look naturally it requires a lot more knowledge to kind of get away with that I also had this brief thought of Leda when Strike asks about killing by overdosing. And I just wonder if there's any clues in here that we can't yet see, you know, and Creed Mm. says any fool can overdose someone. So what fool did it to Leda then, you know, someone without any knowledge or experience, I don't know, like a lawyer or something. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Seems plausible. We're going to have to redo all of these episodes when we know the ending so that we can go through all the clues that point to who killed Leda. Yes, definitely. I know that we keep saying this, but I love seeing Strike work in this way because when Creed guesses that Strike is there for Louise, Strike pulls him back and tells him the truth that he was hired by Margot's daughter. It's the truth and it's a lie because he was hired by Margot's daughter, but that's not why he's there. And it's a genius way by giving him this bit of truth he's still going to get what he wants from creed it was clever of him too to not drop it right away to make creed sort of work mm-hmm. for it so that creed would be more ready to believe that yes he pried yeah. it out of him right and it works because along with pretending to agree that he should be in prison instead of broadmoor it mm. causes creed to confess to louise's murder and he gives all the details that i won't repeat but it was amazing yeah And instantly you believe this is the truth. This is what happened to Louise. This is painful, but I keep wondering whether Strike told Robin these details and if, if so, Mm -hmm. how he did it, because he would know that Robin knows all too well exactly what Louise was feeling in her last moments. Right. Yeah. Robin was almost murdered in this, in this exact same way. And I just, I want to hear more of Robin's thoughts about Louise and what happened to her after she hears Queen's confession. I imagine that of course he would have told her, but I, he probably would have kept it clinical like he did with the the snuff film. Yes. Mm -hmm. I imagine that that's how it would have been. And also because he doesn't know that that's not what Robin wants. So yeah, yeah, I imagine that's what it would be. I want to read that scene still, the full scene. I want to read them having a conversation afterwards with some more whiskey about it. Oh, yeah. And just let what happens happen. So I love this next bit. Creed tells Strike that he won't tell where Louise's body is until he's moved back to prison. And then maybe he'll feel like talking about Margot. He's trying to manipulate Strike without realizing that Strike has already manipulated him so well. Right. Oh, God. It says, you're full of shit, said Strike, getting to his feet, looking angry. I'm not passing this on. And I love that it says he's looking angry and not that he actually was. Right. He's acting. Yeah. I mean, I know it confirms this in just a minute, but I just love it so much. It's so good. 
Yes. Yes. The fact that she says looking angry, that's not how she usually describes his emotions. It's, it's such a tell that he's putting it on Mm, masterful. So Creed in his ridiculous narcissistic egotistical way gives what he thinks is a brilliant clue to where Louise is. You'll find Louise Tucker's body where you find M54. Oh, I just think this is so funny because Creed clearly has an image of himself in his head as one of those genius serial killers from TV, like the detective's arch nemesis who keeps showing up for various episodes and outsmarting everyone with their stupid serial killer shit and games. He's the Moriarty to Strikes Holmes. And then it takes about two minutes before Strike is like, guess what? You're an idiot. (laughs) I win, right? And then we'll get to the next chapter where two minutes more Robin is cracking his stupid clue with like 30 seconds of Googling. And I just really love the complete decimation of Creed's arrogance and his ego here with this clue about Louise. Oh, it's so good that the turnaround where we see exactly how Strike's trapped him. Sorry not to be able to help with Dr. Bambara called Creed and Strike could hear his pleasure at the idea that he'd thwarted the detective. Strike turned back one last time and now he stopped pretending to be angry and grinned too. I was here for Louise, you silly fucker. I know you never met Margot Bambara. She was murdered by a far more skillful killer than you ever were. And just so you know, Strike added as the nurse's keys jangled and Creed's slack, fat-faced registered dismay, I think you're a fucking lunatic. And if anyone asks me, I'll say you should be in Broadmoor till you rot. Oh, I love it. Yes. I need a cigarette after that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> She's like, drop the mic. Yes. So oh, good. beautiful. Bulls, I know you said that Cormoran arguing against porn was the hottest thing he's ever done, but yeah. come on. This. This. Oh, yeah. this. Okay. Considering the drawbacks of the porn argument, you know, his bad yes. behavior, this absolutely rockets to the top. The sexiest thing he's ever done. God, just mm-hmm. the power, the intelligence, mm, intelligence, the grinning at him. I, I'm just, mm. I wish we could have seen Strike telling Robin about everything that happened because we already know that she's impressed right we we know she thinks highly of his skills and his intelligence but I want to see that move slightly into oh this is attractive oh absolutely I'm gonna go back to the office references here (laughs) okay do you remember the episode where Rory tries to attack Jim and Dwight (laughs) pepper sprays him right And then afterward, Angela is going around to everyone in the office trying to get the salacious details of what happened for her own enjoyment. Yeah, I'm just picturing Robin over here calling Dr. Bergeon being like, so just just for my records, (laughs) can you tell me exactly how Mr. Strike got Creed to confess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Her trying to get the surveillance video so she can see Strike's grin. Being like, so did did he like lean over with his hands on the table? <laughs> Were his shirt sleeves rolled up? <laughs> Were his shirt sleeves? Oh, that is asking the real important questions there. Yeah. That's a nice um, mental image. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. That's going to give me sweet dreams. But yeah, Robin, I wish she could have seen this interview because, oh boy. <laughs> I don't think she'd have been able to uh, resist (laughs) the sort of climbing him like a tree, climbing him like, like he's a Christmas tree and she's a cat after a bobble, (laughs) you know, she's Cagney, right? The one who always wants him to strike's lap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jumping up into strike's lap. Yeah, basically. Oh, 
what a great ending to the chapter and we find out oh shit he knows who killed margo and it's not creed mm-hmm. but i don't think any of us guessed it no i still didn't he was outside her house and then i was like oh my god yeah is the murderer visiting janice <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what, though, you guys, this was our 20th episode. Oh, my God. I know we've done a few little extra ones, but that's exciting. That is really 20 exciting. Episodes, 20 full episodes. I can't believe that. We've only got three more episodes left. Of Troubled Blood? Yeah. We've got two more for the rest of the book, and then we have book six predictions. Oh, right. I have, We should do a reader questions episode. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That would be fun. We should do a predictions episode right after we finish this, but also yeah. another one when we get the title and synopsis. Yeah, absolutely. Because then we'll have some more stuff, you know? Yeah. That's obvious, but... yeah. 100%. God, what a great set of chapters. We're really getting to it now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of chapters 69 through 71. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.